we often hear that there's a boy crisis and that girls excel in schools. And for a hundred years of girls being educated, they have done better than boys in school. This has not yielded structural change in wage gaps, wealth gaps, political parity. It's irrelevant, right? In fact, it's arguable that what girls are rewarded for in school is quiet and conformity, not mastery. So what happens when a girl is not quiet? As with any condition, until we have language for what we are experiencing, until we can name it, we often feel controlled by it. In January 2019, Soraya Shamali renamed and redefined anger for me. In a riveting talk based upon her book, Rage Becomes Her, The Power of Women's Anger, Shamali puts female anger into its societal context, revealing it as a tool of transformation, an untapped resource for change. I'm Rebecca Hoogs, the Associate Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. You're listening to Sal On Air, a collection of talks from the world's best writers from over 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Soraya Shamali is the executive director of the Representation Project. An award-winning author and activist, she writes and speaks frequently on topics related to gender norms, inclusivity, social justice, free speech, sexualized violence, and technology. In this illuminating talk in Q&A with journalist Carol Carmichael, Shamali details the very real ways that women are taught from an early age to control and suppress their anger rather than harness it for change. And the way that this socialization is harmful to women and men, and especially to people of color. What happens when a girl is not quiet? When a girl is loud? When a girl grows up to be a woman who wields her anger as a force of change? The answer is revolutionary. This is Sal on Air. Thank you so much uh, for being here tonight and to Seattle Arts and Lectures for this opportunity uh, to have this conversation. I, um, I wrote this book right after the 2016 election. Actually, I, it was a whole year before I ended up writing the book. But um, so many people say to me, why did you write it? What was making you angry? And I said, well, I woke up in the morning <laughs> and um, if you had asked me for most of my adult life if I was angry about something, I probably would have said, oh no, I'm just not an angry person. I don't really feel angry ever, which isn't really normal, right? People feel angry. Um, but I had been so accustomed to ignoring my anger, to ignoring, as we often do, the physiological changes that anger elicits, to listening to my anger, that it was completely disassociated from my day-to-day -day life. And so what was striking to me after spending many, many years writing about uh, gender and social justice, about the election in particular, was that everyone was angry but only certain people's anger mattered. And it was stark. And for many years, uh, probably from the, the mid-90s on, there were many narratives of angry men, angry white men in particular. And those narratives filled our political conversations. 
But in fact, before the election, studies show that the angriest people, the people who acknowledged their anger, registered their anger, felt their anger, and admitted to their anger the most, were angry, conservative white women. And then after the election, of course, it was angry, liberal white women. <laughs> and so, so I thought, all right, well, this is really notable, and uh, particularly notable given the course of the election. Because in fact, all women, regardless of how disparate our experiences are, we understand that our anger is unwelcome, that it's reviled, and that to express it brings great risk. And actually, even the feeling of anger makes us aware of our social precarity, even if we don't admit it to ourselves. And we learn that very, very young in our lives. And so, if you just think about the election, it's, it's evident that male politicians could leverage anger and leverage populist anger in a way that gave them power. But women, and it ended up just being Hillary Clinton, could not do that. And not only could male politicians leverage general political anger, but they could specifically leverage a contemptuous anger against the idea of women with power. And that's deep in our culture. And so I thought, okay, I've been writing about all of these issues. Now would seem to be a good time to use anger as a filter to understand the status of women and to think through what our daily lives are like. Because the political lives that we see are actually uh, public efflorescence of very granular things that we experience. So I think that um, if we think about those politics and we think about what, it, what those same dynamics look like in the workplace, we know that from studies, men who express anger in the workplace gain in influence. So the expression of anger in a C-suite, for example, or uh, in, in a construction site, if, if a man expresses anger, he's more likely to convince people to his side of the argument. Whereas if a woman does, the opposite happens. If a male lawyer is making a closing argument and he uses anger on behalf of his client, he's more likely to be thought credible and authoritative and hireable, which I thought was interesting. Whereas a woman lawyer under the exact same circumstances, the opposite happens. And so we have many examples of that in the workplace and we have many examples of anger being entwined with leadership and notions of masculinity. Same thing at home. One of the more interesting studies that I found was about married heterosexual couples who have actually the hardest time with expressing and dealing with this emotion. When women in heterosexual marriages report interactions related to anger, they tend overwhelmingly to say that they recast their anger. So they'll describe it as sadness or as fear because they worry about retaliation or reprimand. Men in those relationships report thinking that when women express anger, they're being selfish. That is really inhibiting to an egalitarian relationship or to real intimacy, right? If you really think about it. Because what anger says, whether you're in an interpersonal private context or even in the workplace, is 
this is important, something is important, something has happened that you need to pay attention to. And if you can't say what that is and expect respect, it's very hard to cultivate equality in any kind of relationship or even to change the circumstances that are causing this warning signal. Same thing happens in schools, starting really early on. So if you think about, I mean, all of us have been to school, and, and we often hear that there's a boy crisis and that girls excel in schools. And for a hundred years of girls being educated, they have done better than boys in school. This has not yielded structural change in wage gaps, wealth gaps, political parity. It's irrelevant, right? In fact, it's arguable that what girls are rewarded for in school is quiet and conformity, not mastery. So what happens when a girl is not quiet and when she doesn't follow the rules and do what she's told? She's considered aggressive. She's considered angry. She's tagged often as having behavioral issues. And this quality of being confident and assertive gets mixed up with being mean. And there's this tangled mess of anger, assertion, and aggression, which are three very different things. And so there's a lot of policing of that kind of expression. If the girl happens to be, for example, a girl of color or black, it isn't simply reprimand. It becomes disciplinary, it becomes suspension, it becomes detention, it becomes um, ex a child being expelled. So around the country, we know that black girls on average are expelled or, excuse me, or disciplined at five to 11 times the rates of their white peers. For acting in confident or assertive ways, sometimes aggressive ways, which is totally justified, that in young boys is seen as leadership potential. In schools, well, there was one study that indicated, um, kind of depressingly, um, that girls are told to use their nice voices more than three times as often by teachers. And um, we all, as adults, engage in very gendered responses to children, whether we mean to or not. Um, for example, encouraging girls to smile. And I mean, I literally grew up hearing things like, you would be prettier if you smiled, right? And so all of these things accrue over time to shape the way we behave. The gendering and early socialization are um, habits and they're part of our culture. We live in a, in a pretty sex-stratified, gendered culture that we don't really think about. There are some great sociological theories called uh, separate sphere theories about how that works. We tend to think of gender in terms of our personal attributes or behaviors or um, identities, but in fact, excuse me, gender is really structural. It governs our roles, it governs our work, it governs our thought processes, it even governs the way we divide ideas. So we associate anger very early with men, boys, and masculinity. And the flip side is that we associate sadness with girls, women, and femininity. So even infants in their beds, people will look at them, and if they think a touchy infant is a boy, they'll use words describing that baby as angry, aggressive, um, difficult. The same infant, if they think it's a girl, they use a totally different set of words. 
indicating that she's more vulnerable, maybe weaker, maybe more in need of care, and maybe sadder. Sadness and anger are really different. They, they have different effects both on the person who is feeling those or has been described as feeling those. And those attributions have a very long tail. So in adulthood, there was this fascinating study that showed, um, they, they tested how people attributed emotion based on the throwing of a ball. And they had um, study participants throw the ball according to certain emotions if they could use their bodies to convey those emotions. And what they found was that if a person was thought to be a man, those looking at, at, at the throwing person would again describe that person as angry, aggressive, violent. But if they thought it was a woman, totally different set of words, often associated with sadness. And so all of these come together in not big and blunt ways. That kind of socialization and the policing and the restrictions and actually the penalties that come with a girl or woman expressing anger or just being a, a assertive, those, those come in really the small minutia of life. So I write in my book about one incident. Um, I had a daughter in preschool and she every morning built a castle and every single morning a little boy knocked it down without fail, every morning. And his parents were always there, and they never stopped him. After he knocked it down, they had many responses. He's such a boy. How could he possibly resist it? It's so tempting and glittery, it has ribbons. What did she expect? I mean, boys are destructive. They went on and on and on and on. And their attitude, aside from being, frankly, rape apologists, right? Their, their attitude, and honestly, like, you can't stand in a preschool and explain why a child doing that becomes a justification for rape. It doesn't make you a popular parent, <laughs> right? So, so I did actually all the things I thought I should do to make my child a good citizen. She used her words, it didn't work. She tried, like, gently body blocking him, total failure. She moved where she built the castle, it didn't matter. And what we did as adults was mutually construct an entitlement for this boy. And it was a specific male entitlement in that he could control the environment and he was not expected to regulate himself and she was expected to implicate herself in his development. Right? And all of that in this little, one little incident. And so, one of the more important things about that to me has to do with space, physical space, because studies also show that um, parents won't let girls go as far when they're crawling or toddling as they let boys go. Parents of girls have a more acute sense of risk, so they limit them more. And the thing about anger is that it's actually an emotion that reflects a belief that you can control things around you. Sadness doesn't do that. Sadness has its virtues, because actually sad people have more empathy. But anger's different. Anger signals that there's a problem, and then it, in theory, allows you to believe as a human being that you have the right to address that problem and expect respect, and expect that your community, 
the, the people in your family, the people in your religious community, the people in your educational community, will respect you as a peer. And women don't have that. Black people, by and large, do not have it, whether they're men or women. Marginalized people do not have the use of anger that is respected as a civic virtue by higher status people in the society. In our society, that tends to be white men. So what does that mean? What do we do about that, right? The long tail of this socialization and our cultural beliefs about these emotions is profound in our society. It, um, it means for women that we cannot defend ourselves and be taken seriously, ultimately. So because of this overarching idea that uh, we have these masculine and feminine roles, and that they're quite rigid and binary and, in theory, complementary. We are tasked with the job of nurturing everybody and providing care. And the way I describe it in the book is that there's a care mandate. It is literally that we are taught to put others first. And um, I do have 70 pages of citations in the book, which I will not bore you with. <laughs> but. But there are many indications of how that happens, right? And so there may be um, epigenetic reasons, there might be biological factors, but in fact, socialization is an immense quality. And when it comes to space and behavior and anger and emotion, one of the more interesting things that I found was the relationship between physical behavior and the production of hormones. Because a lot of people assume that men are the angrier sex, and that they feel anger more, and that their aggression is angry, and that their anger is aggression. When in fact, everybody pretty much feels anger at the same rate. Women actually report feeling anger more often, with more sustained longevity, and with more intensity. And um, so the question is, what is it about the way we teach people to physically behave that might be contributing to our ideas about these emotions and their social construction. So what I hear very often when I talk about this is literally, but boys and men have testosterone. <laughs> Women have testosterone too, by the way. But in one of the cleverer bits of research that I've seen, um, researchers had performers in a theater enact firing, a firing scene, where one person fired another person in a particularly degrading and dehumanizing way. Before each skit, they would take a saliva swab, and um, after the skit, they would take another one. And what they found was fascinating. What they found was that the people who fired someone, their testosterone levels skyrocketed. If the person firing was a man, his, his testosterone levels went up by a factor on average of four. If the person firing someone was a woman, it was 10. Right? Now, men have a higher baseline, but 10's a lot. <laughs> right? And so studies like that really beg the question of how the way we treat children and their, and their interactions with physical space what the, inter what the interactions of that socialization are with our hormonal production and then our behaviors, uh, which, which I think is super interesting. So in the end, though, what ends up being the case is that we as girls and women are 
we become accustomed to being mocked for anger, not, not being taken seriously. And so how many people have seen videos of little girls throwing a temper tantrum? They sort of viral videos. Anybody? They sometimes zip around. Now, now think about what that means, right? This child is having a hard time, and someone points a camera at her and makes it an object of fun, right? And little things like that are happening constantly. And so we go from being sort of princesses and then bratty princesses and then hormonal teens and then whiny bitches and high-maintenance women and then nags, right? And, and, and the course of these stereotypes follows us throughout our lives and is really flavored. So if you're a black woman, you don't even have to say anything. You're just an angry black woman, right? You don't even have the chance to express your opinion or your rational response to something, or defend yourself. I mean, you end up in terribly dangerous situations if you're a black woman in America, right? We know what happened to Sandra Bland. That's not an outlier consideration if you're a woman who is black and is just simply trying to defend herself. If you're Hispanic, this has happened to me, I'm not even Hispanic, right? I kind of maybe look Hispanic sometimes. Your anger is interpreted as some kind of sexy food product. Right? Like, literally, you're a hot tamale. And you're like, what? If you happen to be of Asian descent, it's, chances are you're a sad Asian girl. You're not, you know, passive. You're supposed to be sort of servile. And these stereotypes sort of spin on and on, and every single one of them has a demeaning, silencing quality. Right? And so we have, a, I think, a realistic sense of why the anger is a risk. Now, I think most people think anger is a risk because it might break, break relationships. But in fact, it's a risk because it means we actually will find out whether the people around us care about what we're saying is important, which I think is much harder, right? It's hard to actually figure out that maybe they don't care enough to respect what you're saying. And so we get used to... Uh, the idea that we are the more emotional gender being used against us. It's weaponized against us, right? And then there are penalties. There's the trivialization. There's the fear of retaliation. But then there are two other things that I find interesting. There's objectification. We are all objectified in the society as women. You can't walk outside for two minutes without seeing a part of a woman's body. And... Sometimes, I mean, I write a lot about objectification and uh, often get uh, scolded for not focusing on what feminists should focus on. Um, but it's interesting to me that one of the aspects of objectification that we don't really ever talk about is the impact of self-objectification on how we feel our own bodies. So women who have high levels of self-objectification and self-surveillance, right, knowing how they're sitting all the time, it, it occupies a, a lot of mental space, lose the ability to, for example, accurately count their own heartbeats, or um, take their pulses, or actually interpret feelings in their body, which means the higher your levels of self-objectification, the less in touch you are with any of your emotions, particularly anger. Right? which is a terrible side effect to something that's pretty common, common in this society. But lastly, what happens is that we get sick. If you, um, 
there was something in the news this week that really, I made this, oh, how many people heard the story about the young mother who died in the New York subway? Right, this is a horrible tragedy. A totally avoidable tragedy if we had access for people with disability, access for people who cared for the elderly and for children, right? And in fact, our cities are remarkably hostile to anybody except like an unencumbered, able-bodied person who is, generally speaking, a man, right? Like our cities are not built with the lighting that women need to get around or the ramps that people who have to use wheel devices need. I mean, over and over and over again, city after city after city, we know that cities are not built to be inclusive spaces and that they are actively aggressive and hostile to certain parts of the, the population. And that's because the norm for the ideal person in a city is actually still an able-bodied single man who is unencumbered by bags or tight clothes or children or caring for other people. And <laughs> so this young woman, like many of us, I mean, I had three children and strollers in a city. I don't know how many times I literally risked my life on an escalator or trying to move people around the city. And um, so we have all these male norms that we don't think about. Same thing with women in lines at bathrooms, the design of microwaves and cockpits. I mean, the list is super long. We have the same male norms around our impressions of anger. So when people usually think of anger, they think of rage. If they think of anger management, they think of having to control violent rage. If you Google anger management, you literally get a a whole slew of pictures of white men screaming at things, <laughs> right? Literally, they're screaming at computers, they're screaming at each other, they're screaming at walls. And that's actually not most of people's anger experiences. If you have been taught to ruminate, as most women are, if you have been taught to not express your anger, if you then learn to tessellate it into other things or divert it into other behaviors, screaming at something is not what you have to manage. What you actually probably need is not to manage your anger, which you're doing all the time. It's to liberate that anger. It's like water. If you do not pay attention to it, if you do not give it um, a, an outlet that is healthy, it finds a way to manifest itself anyway. So if we think about all of the illnesses that are thought of as women's illnesses, and we could have a whole session on the medical profession and bias against women and their pain, but then those are really treated the same way. Like women's pain and women's anger are treated remarkably similarly. But in fact, what happens is things like eating disorders, chronic pain, depression, anxiety, cardiac ailments, autoimmune diseases. I'm not saying that anger causes these things, but anger has been implicated. The mismanagement of anger, the repression of anger, the suppression of anger, the diversion of anger, the unhealthy treatment of this emotion has been implicated in all of these. And so you really have to step back and say, all right, well, what does it mean for us to not feel this emotion, to have the right to use the emotion to defend ourselves, to have a healthy outlet in which we, we don't constantly calibrate our behavior to the fear of retaliation or the fear of violence, right? And so 
we have um, a kind of social ignorance around women's lives that continues, and a lot of it has to do with violence. So if you think about Me Too, Me Too and Time's Up are the current endpoints of a long genealogy of hashtags in which women shared information about their experiences. So along the way, we had not okay, we had everyday sexism, we had yes, all women. And at each stage, millions of women shared their experiences of sexual assault or rape or discrimination or violence. And each one of those outpourings was a way of um, raising public awareness and consciousness of what women do to adapt to the threat of male violence. So what I think is interesting is that with anger and with um, the threat of violence comes a pretty consistent response, which is denial, right? What you're saying cannot be taken seriously or must be an exaggeration. There's a lot of gaslighting that goes with it. And this was another thing that really prompted me to write this book. Who remembers after the um, grab them by the pussy tape, who remembers the outpouring of women's pain because they were forced to think about memories that they didn't want? Did, does, does everyone have that feeling? Um, I really personally couldn't go anywhere for weeks without women being on the verge of tears or wanting to say something or explaining that they had said something. And um, about, I want to say it was two or three weeks later, there was a presidential debate. And this tape was on everybody's minds. And women had been telling these stories, and um, a lot of men had been expressing surprise about what women that they had known for a long time were saying. But then the debate happened. And during the debate, Facebook analyzed tens of millions of comments. What were people interested in in the debates? What were they talking about online? And for men, there were the top five issues, and I can't remember exactly what they were, but maybe I want to say um, the economy, terrorism, uh, jobs, and then two others. For women, it was the tape was number one, and then everything else. And this is a glaring gap, right? For men not to even have it on the top five, for men not to understand that for women, everything else is affected by navigating male violence all the time is stunning, right? And yes, that really pisses me off, <laughs> right? So I think, I think what's interesting, though, is that we don't see a lot of expressions of anger about the adaptations that we are constantly making. Um, I have another story. Um, my great-grandmother, we have a fairy tale in my family, and I write about it in the book. She was 14, and the, the first time I heard the story, I was five. And the way the story went, more or less always, was um, she was a beautiful girl, and uh, one day she went for a walk, and a handsome man on a horse rode into her town, in what was then called Transjordan, it wasn't Jordan, because the state of Jordan didn't exist yet, rode into her town 
and swept her off her feet and rode off into the sunset. And they had seven children, and here all of us were. And when you're five, you're like, so cool. Oh my God, I have a princess in my family. Who has a princess in their family, right? Fast forward to when I'm 11, and I hear this story again. And I'd heard it along the way, but by the time I was 11, several things had happened. One was that, uh, starting at the age of about nine, I was relentlessly harassed on the streets all the time. I lived in a place where street harassment continues to be very common in the Bahamas. Um, but in fact, street harassment is common everywhere. And um, the overwhelming majority of women, and by that I mean in the 90s, 9, 90%, 95%, 98% report incidences of street harassment. But I'd already had that experience and um, was extremely aware that the way that I looked and my presence in public endangered me because of this attention. I'd also explicitly been threatened by rape in a schoolyard by an older boy. So when I heard the story this time, I said, well, actually, it sounds like she was kidnapped and serially raped and taken in a boat far away from her family, and she never went back, and that man should go to jail. <laughs> right? And the thing about it is, that man was my great-grandfather, and he was about five foot tall and beloved. He had worked hard his whole life. He'd provided for his family. He'd opened his house up to the indigent. This man was not like your idea of a monstrous rapist. And it's complicated. Misogyny is complicated, right? But in fact, he was, at that point, almost 107. And he was beloved. He was taken care of. He was jovial. He had his wits about him. My great-grandmother lost the capacity to speak. She was catatonic. She shook incessantly before she died. And no one seemed to think that this was the result of trauma. She was just sick, you know? And so two things happened uh, that reflect epistemic injustice. One is an aspect of epistemic injustice that's called testimonial injustice, which is when people hold a prejudice that leads them not to believe what you're saying. That happened in two ways. She never had a voice. No one ever heard her side of the story. The story really glorified not just my great-grandfather, but his manhood. Not only did he win a prize, he then had seven children, right? So she was silenced and traumatized, and then when I tried to relate that to my experiences, I was also silenced and made fun of, because no one responded well to the suggestion that my grandfather go to jail. <laughs> so, so, so that's testimonial injustice. The second aspect, though, is hermeneutic injustice. What happens when these stories are not told? And for women, our stories are still not told. Our stories of maternity, of fertility, of violence, of rape, of assault, of discrimination, of all kinds. It's still extremely hard to tell those stories and have them be taken seriously. So if you think about the election, right, we had people online acting in malicious, malevolent ways that 
are recognized now as malicious and malevolent. But the fact that women in the United States who had a political opinions had to hide in secret Facebook groups to share those opinions was not seen as a degradation of the proper functioning of democracy, right? Women without freedom of expression in public space should be of central concern and importance to anybody who's worried about the state of democracy. And yet it doesn't matter until it happens to a man, usually a white man. Who was surprised that Trump won? Not black women, right? They were not surprised. Most black men weren't surprised. Mainly the people, I live in Washington, the people who were mainly surprised tended to be a lot of progressive white men. And the relation between my great-grandmother's story and our election is this. If you think of the scale of what I just told you in my own home, that happens at scale in our media. 70% of bylines are still men's. In our newsrooms, for political stories, it's between 70 and 80. For sports, it's more like 90, and that matters because athletes are often implicated, for example, in stories of sexual assault. And who is telling those stories, right? And so we have these biases that are built into the way we produce media. And those same silencing and denial patterns that we experience at intimate levels, and we tend to, all studies indicate that this sort of big gap in understanding between what women are saying and what men believe, and I cite a lot of them, and there are even more in the last year since I've published the book, but that's happening at scale in our media. So the interesting thing about hashtags, like Me Too, are that they are infused with women's rage. But they are a very, very, very good example of how rage is information. How it is information that shapes public awareness. For the first time, even though we have all the harms of this technology, we have the ability to bypass gatekeepers, and we have the ability to confront shame. If you think of something like Shout Your Abortion, right? Mainstream newspapers and media are not shouting women's abortions. Women are shouting their abortions, right? And we couldn't do that unless we could find each other, support each other, find allies, communicate with the public, and do that without shame, and do it with real anger. And so this impression that anger is negative, uh, I'm trying to confront in the book, the impression that it is masculine, definitely overthrowing that idea. Um, and, and, I, and I'd like to sort of close with this idea that there is so much hopefulness in the anger that we have. And if you even think about Me Too, I keep being asked, I've been asked now for weeks, has uh, Me Too failed? And frankly, the only response to that is to laugh, right? We have millennia of misogyny and oppression and intersectional violence, and Me Too has been around in the public eye for about 16 months, right? Tarana Burke, who founded the movement to focus on survivors, has been at it for more than a decade. But I think what's scarier to people is not that it's at an end and it's failed, but that it's just at the beginning. Right? And it's a very hopeful movement, because for the first time, women are sharing their stories 
with some confidence that they might be believed, right? So when men say to me, I don't have a place, what should I be doing, I'm guilty by association, I say, oh, welcome. <laughs> Thank you, right? You are an honorary woman, have fun. Like, you know, and, and the thing is though, I think for a lot of men that I talk to, even men that I love, men that are smart, they're thinking about it, it's very hard to conceive of listening as an action, right? <laughs> but, but no, in fact, listening is an action, right? You have to listen. And it's not the same as hearing, as my very loud five-year-old said one day in school. But, but it takes a lot of effort to really listen to people. And what we know from linguistic studies is that men are talking a lot. <laughs> and it would help if they talked less. <laughs> and so... And, and so I just want to... I want to leave you with the, the frank outrage that pushed me to write the book and motivates me every day, which is just the sheer number of people who think that men alone in rooms with a token woman now and then, have any ethical or moral standing <laughs> to make decisions on behalf of humanity, right? And, and they don't. Like, there should be no doubt that they do not have that ethical and moral standing. And because women have been given the role of nurturing, because we are responsible for making other people comfortable that gives us power in that we should make people uncomfortable with that idea, right? We should make people uncomfortable with our anger being unacceptable, right? And so I would urge you to think about, in your day-to-day -day lives, the art of the possible in these personal interactions being deeply and profoundly public and, and political. So, thank you so much for having me. We'll return for the rest of the event with Soraya Shamali in a moment. But first, I wanted to invite you to join us for events this spring with botanist Robin Wall Kimmerer, author of Braiding Sweetgrass, poet Natalie Diaz, author of Post-Colonial Love Poem, and humorist and science writer Mary Roach, author of Stiff, Grunt, and More. Digital passes for these online events start at $10 and are available at lectures.org. And now, more from Soraya Shamali. Soraya, that was just wonderful. Oh, thank wonderful, you. wonderful. And for those who have read the book, you know from what I speak. And for those of you who haven't read the book, you're in for uh, and <laughs> a journey, a journey, a journey, and it's it's quite sobering. It's quite sobering and uh, and very necessary. So we are here to thank you. Before thank you. I get into, there's so many questions. I know I won't have time to to ask them all, but I want you. I want to hear from the audience. I don't want to steal the show and ask my questions. So please, there's a little form in the, in the uh, program, you can write your questions and they'll start to collect them and we'll try to 
to some of mine and some of yours. I want you to describe anger for us in a way of its fullness. You do a very wonderful description in the book, and I would love for the audience, particularly those who haven't gotten mm-hmm. as far as I did, okay. toward the fullness um, of... It's a great question, um, which I had to think about a lot and often, um, because I think we all learn to internalize this idea that anger is negative, only negative, overwhelmingly negative, should be avoided, shouldn't be expressed. Uh, I mean, we're all familiar with it. Um, but in fact, anger by itself, it's neutral, it's an emotion, we can figure out what to do with it, and um, unfortunately, what we tend to associate it with, because we never learn what I refer to as emotional competence, we don't actually learn to think about how we're feeling. We don't learn to think about the meaning of how we're feeling as children, for the most part, maybe some of us do, and I'm deeply envious of that, but I never did, and most people, I think, don't. Um, So we end up with this idea that anger is dangerous and negative and harmful. But in fact, I think anger is so much more than that. And in the same way that we have witnessed the anger of contempt and disgust that fuels the rise of authoritarianism and sort of macho fascism and racial hate and anti-Semitism, that's all legitimate. I would say that that is an anger of resentment. It's an anger of looking back It's an anger of revenge. It's a very destructive anger. Uh, But by the same token, we've seen, uh, and we have seen for a very long time, we've really seen an efflorescence of it, but we also have an anger of hope that is um, building communities that are joyful and compassionate and um, productive and that bring people together in ways that they may not have come together without their anger. for myself personally, as a, as a woman, as a feminist, you know, in, I, I, I think I followed a pretty typical path for women, which is that I lived with the harassment and the discrimination and the sexism and the violence and the just constant suggestion that I should smile, literally, mm-hmm. smile all the time. Um, and I lived with it until I had three daughters. And then, I was allowed in the way that we are to express anger as a mother. Now, we can't express anger about motherhood. No. Right? (laughs) About how fucking tired it makes us, how um, impoverished it makes us, Mm -hmm. how physically damaging it can be to us. Um, I do have a chapter that is purely on the ideal of motherhood. Whether you have children or not is irrelevant. Because in fact, if you are in the fertile zone, right, your employer treats you as though you might have a baby any minute. (laughs) Because we are all potentially pregnant at all times, right? And so we can express anger if we're mothers. So if you look at conservative women politicians, what do they lead with? They lead with mama bearness. Mm -hmm. And if you look at women's political movements, they are often framed in motherhood because that is acceptable doubling down on the status quo of sex segregation and your proper role. So Mothers Against Drunk Driving, the prohibition movement. Um, uh, you can, like, you know, Moms for Sane Gun Reform, uh, the, child, the Children's Defense Fund, wonderful, incredible organizations, but literally, okay, fine, we're going to tip our hats at the fact that we know we have to produce babies and that we can be angry not for ourselves, but for others. Mm -hmm. And we see that over and over and over again. But having said all of that, I do think that anger 
is incredibly creative, incredibly joyful. You see it in women's music, you see it in their art, you see it in their communities. And so I just urge people to step back from the, and unlearn the lessons that we learn about ourselves and our anger. So one of the points in the book that you raise uh, had me go back to a moment of collective rage for women in the country, and that was the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. And so there sat sat Senator Chuck Grassley, soldiered on in the same seat 27 years after Anita Hill took the oath. With five other people that were there. Yes, five others. Same fervor, little appreciation for women, the sexual harassment then, sexual assault now. And many people say, well, with this passing of that generation, things will change. But you, you brought up a very good story, which I'd love for you to share, on the exploitation of women on social media through the telling of a story of a young man that you dubbed Toaster Boy. <laughs> So I would like for you to share that because I think the way we raise our young men today says a lot about how women will be treated in the future. So um, before I tell the story, I want to just share a few really depressing statistics. Um, One is that there's no progressive trajectory to dismantling any of the forms of discrimination that we're talking about. The, I would seriously argue that in terms of our interpersonal relationships, because most people continue to have uh, same race and ethnicity relationships, that, and then they often have children, that gender becomes incredibly defining to the way people relate to one another. And unfortunately, the way we have taught an entire generation to relate to one another is not looking so good for girls and women. And I think it makes sense because, in fact, um, the last 25 years have been a period of intense backlash. And um, we had a generation that grew up with intensely backlashy media. If you just look at the most superficial things like superhero movies and Disney movies and their merchandising and the way that they shape imaginations, you will see hyper-exaggerated masculine caricatures and gender essentialism like, you could just play whack-a-mole for weeks, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, the thing about the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, I, I mean, if what happened in terms of their anger differentials isn't clear, mm-hmm. nothing I say is going to make it clear, right? <laughs> and, and so, I thought what was most interesting about the distinction Mm-hmm. was that she did remain composed and calm. And mm-hmm. I was personally, the saddest part for me was the moment when she said, she referred to collegiality when she was being sort of deferential. Mm-hmm. And that really broke my heart because I realized she thinks that they think of her as a peer who they respect. And that's clearly not, not the case. My um, goodness. But what was interesting to me, of course, was the flanks of women behind him. And the fact that after he had his hissy fit and tantrum, his approval ratings went up. Mm-hmm. And that's important, because I think a lot of people think that people who are born and identify as women are feminists automatically, mm-hmm. which is not true. Mm-hmm. And that somehow, if you are a person who says that you're a feminist or that you're a person who says 
you know, I'm a woman and I understand that you will not be subject to the forces in the culture. And there are many progressive men who abjure that sensibility and many women who embrace it because in fact um, it's very protective of their identities and it makes a lot of psychological sense. Um, but I will talk about Toaster Boy now. Um, I speak at a lot of colleges and universities and I also, half of the work that I do has to do with technology and um, online violence. It's at the nexus of violence uh, gender-based violence, freedom of expression, and technology. So a lot of work with activists around the world um, and uh, with tech companies. So I was in a school, and I will only add to this, I will eventually get to the story, to say that this is not uncommon, what I'm about to describe. 19-year-olds, maybe 40 or 50 in the room, and we had been having a conversation about uh, social mores and uh, inequality, and everyone in the room had a hard time believing that uh, gender inequality was a problem, which, which actually is very common because studies of teenagers show that they bend over backwards to believe in mostly meritocracy and equality and that if, if they spot something, if, for example, you say, well, there's sexism, a lot of teenagers will argue that it's a two-way street and that boys and men experience sexism too. So there's not a lot of distinction between describing bias or prejudice, discrimination. There are lots of levels, right? Stereotypes to overt violence. If you ask boys and girls to give you examples, a lot of boys will say things like, well, you know, advertisements make us look dumb when we're supposed to be taking care of kids or something, you know? Or the Gillette ad makes us all look like rapists, right? <laughs> and if you ask girls, They'll say, I was sexually assaulted last summer in camp. And the distinction becomes quite large, right? So I had asked this class, I said, how many, how many people here have experienced street harassment? And um, very often when I ask that question, a fair number of women will put their hands up and young black men will put their hands up. Because in fact, street harassment functions to police many different people on the street in many different ways. And the, the way that like stop and frisk works is analogous in many ways to the way men police women in public space, right? There's lots of good academic work on that. So we had this conversation and nobody put up their hand to say that they had been harassed on the street, which I thought was interesting. I said, okay, well, how many of you exercise at night outside and don't pay for a gym? And most of the boys were like, yeah, I go running, you know. Asked a few more questions and it became pretty clear that the women weren't being harassed because they were avoiding public space. They just weren't doing certain things. That would, they weren't making eye contact, for example. So we then went on to what that looks like in the digital world. So online, what, what happens? And so everyone was familiar with sexting. Most people um, of that demographic have had exposure to sexting or have themselves sexted, usually within the confines of a relationship. But an interesting thing happens around the ages of 11 and 12. Boys and girls may be equally sharing sex, but boys are three to five times more likely to then share without consent. Hmm. So I talked about that and I said, well, this is a form of objectification mm -hmm. and it's, um, uh, it's a distinction that matters. 
that quality of not caring for what happens to this person. And so this young man put up his hand, and he, and he had a scrum of his friends around him, and they were sitting in the back, and he said, well, you know, I mean, I don't really see what the difference is. If, if my girlfriend sends me a picture of herself naked, it's mine, so I don't know what the difference is between sharing a picture of her and sharing a picture of my toaster. Mm. And, and I had about five minutes left. And, and I was thinking, damn. Like he picked a warm object with slits. And, and then he put something that you slather in a white substance. I'm like, seriously? And so I just thought, wow, the level of objectification that he just encapsulated so quickly, right? It didn't, he just didn't even realize he did it. And, and I think he thought maybe he was just kind of being smart about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I thought, wow, I wonder if anybody here feels indignance. I wonder if any of the women in this room feel indignance, because automatically something happens when he says something like that. Right. Almost all the women are then having to put themselves in the position of the woman in the picture. Right. Mm-hmm. Thereby self-objectifying. Mm-hmm. And that becomes silencing, because we also know that if we are women in that classroom, and we say something, we will be socially punished for saying something. Yes. That's just the way that works. Mm-hmm. And so I failed miserably, because I just looked at him and I said, in the beginning there was darkness, mm-hmm. and if you want to come and speak to me after, I am happy to, but the difference, I can't believe I have to say this, of course, is that the toaster is not a human, does not have dignity, does not have rights to privacy, does not you know, expect maybe a measure of consent. I would argue that actually it's super different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But in fact, in fact, what he said and did is not an anomaly, right? Mm -hmm. It's just not. And the fact that nobody showed indignance Mm -hmm. was deep, I was indignant, I was really mad, Mm -hmm. right? But I had a lot of power in the room, I was giving the lecture, I'm an adult, all of those things, but I'm also a woman. And I had exactly the response, mentally, cognitively, psychologically, that women have. And so, um, it's a big problem. I will link this, I keep going back to the election because I'm obsessed with the election. But, but in fact, this is another example of why things like how we know what we know matters. Mm-hmm. For several, for a long time before the election, um, I studied pornographic representations of women with power in the country. And it was because I happened to, to get in like Instagram a funny meme that showed Bernie Sanders engaging in anal sex with um, Hillary Clinton in a cartoon. And it had, uh, the first time I saw it, maybe it had 25,000 likes, second time 80,000, third time 200,000. Wow. And, um, and then I went down that rabbit hole and um, images and videos and memes like that were proliferating on all these platforms and they were sexually objectifying. Whether you call a woman a whore or a prude, they're both sexually objectifying, right? And um, no one seemed to think this was politically relevant. And it happened to Condoleezza Rice, it happened to Nancy Pelosi, it happened to Michelle Obama, 
uh, with women who have children, there I found a lot of mother-daughter porn. And um, it's a strategy, right, for denigrating a woman and for degrading her moral capacity. And um, I think it matters. You know, if people want to watch porn, they should and they can and they're free to, but we shouldn't pretend that it's not having a political effect mm -hmm. on the way we perceive candidates and um, on the way we choose or don't choose to educate children because we won't talk about porn, we won't talk about porn literacy, we won't talk about any of these issues in our, in our education. And um, I think that's a threat to democracy. Well, we have some young people in the room who are asking questions. Yes. How should we raise our teenage daughters to channel and use their energy? And how do I get my daughter to understand the wage gap is real and should make her angry? So, you know, I get a lot of questions about daughters, and I think they're important. I don't think they are necessarily as important as the questions about sons. Because, in fact, it's just a hard, cold truth that boys will grow up still to have a lot more power to make decisions in institutions. Mm -hmm. And if those boys don't grow up to be men who are men of conscience, then we're screwed for another generation or two or five mm -hmm. or eight. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I think that you walk a really fine line with children. Sometimes it's a luxury. I mean, I could keep my children in a bubble that if I were black, I couldn't. That's a luxury that I had. I, was, I could buffer my, my daughters, I would say, really realistically until they were sort of eight or nine. Mm -hmm. My daughters were very tall. They looked older than they were. They got a lot of attention very early. And so we talked about that. We talked about what that attention meant. And um, I'm pretty blunt and tried to frame things in ways that uh, are age appropriate. Um, I tend to think that a conversation, for example, about the wage gap is many, many, many conversations that start when people are selling lemonade and when they're four, <laughs> right? So there's so many ways to have those conversations, but they, they have to be so many conversations, you know? I think it's very hard, because it's scary. What are you gonna do, sit your daughter down and say, hey, you're just not going to be paid fairly. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, that's a horrible thing to say to someone, right? And it's demoralizing. Mm -hmm. It's just sad. It's sad to think I won't be treated fairly, especially if you're working really hard, you're doing really well at school, you have a bunch of people around you who are denying the fact that maybe you are being sexually objectified, maybe you are being called a bitch for expressing your opinion, you know, I mean, there's so many different layers. Um, for better or worse, I try and address them in the book, which may depress you, but I promise it gets better. Well, you say, you say one thing in the book that I find very interesting. In a household where there's a boy and a girl, yes. child, the girl has to clean the dishwasher and is paid less for that task. The boy has to go out and shovel the snow, let's say. He's right. paid more, so immediately the reward system right. is set amongst in families so this this i think is super important which is something everyone has control over in their own homes i mean i hate taking out the garbage i hate taking out the garbage but i take it out 
to set an example for my daughters that the garbage is not my husband's job, right? And he loves shopping. I hate shopping. <laughs> I genuinely hate it. If I could order everything on my phone and never go into a retail space, I would probably be that person. But I think, you know, we know that when men in families, let's say you're in a heterosexual family, men in families who do cross-gender jobs, their daughters have greater ambitions and um, also have greater salary ambitions. And the interesting thing is, heterosexual marriage is a, is a factory of gender and inequality. And we see it, right? I, I, I'm in a heterosexual marriage, 34 years, super happy, love my husband, factory of gender inequality. Okay? But we are super aware, we're super aware of what that means and what it looks like. And even if you, in the privacy of your own home, are trying your hardest, the fact is, you have to go into other institutions. And those institutions make it super hard to live to, with your ideals. So chores are a really good example. Mm -hmm. You know, when we gender chores, not only do we know from many studies that boys tend to be paid more for their labor in the home, but they also do jobs that are marketable outside of the home. Mm -hmm. So if a boy is mowing lawns and his sister is cleaning dishes, he can go mow lawns for 50 people that summer. She's not gonna go do the dishes for all the neighbors. <laughs> right? Because wouldn't that be weird? Mm -hmm. so, so, so I just think that's really, you know, mm -hmm. it's sort of important. I will say this though, what's super interesting is um, the most egalitarian households that way are lesbian couples mm -hmm. because they tend to talk about this, negotiate who's doing what openly. There's no reason why everybody couldn't do that more effectively if they tried. Well, following up on that, the one questioner says, non-binary people are becoming more visible. Mm -hmm. What do you see the role of anger is as the mainstream begins to recognize trans people? Mm -hmm. So a couple of really interesting things. First of all, there are not a lot of studies about non-binary and trans people and emotional regulation. They just don't exist. Interestingly, people who are androgynous have recorded higher rates of emotional, better emotional regulation. Mm -hmm. um, queer and non-binary people are not holding themselves to these standards that tend to be oppositional and extreme. And that actually seems to be liberating in terms of emotional resilience and um, there are often for trans people and queer people um, high, high and higher rates of depression, anxiety, self-harm, and suicide, um, which may seem counter to what I'm saying, mm -hmm. but in fact, we just don't know enough. This is the whole, there's like a hole. And this is one of those examples of how institutions are failing us because the population is embracing this, but our institutions are not. I mean, come on. I still am supposed to write a maiden name for a password check, yes. right? And so we don't even think about the way that cisgendered heteropatriarchal norms are being coded into software systems every single day, right? Like there's nobody heading up a Silicon Valley company who's like a, a queer revolutionary 
who's going to systematize all of that in our banking lives, right? And so, uh, you know, the problem I think is that we don't have the information, we don't have a, a systemic way of capturing the information that we need, and we have institutional conservatism. So here's a question. Do you meditate and have a yoga <laughs> practice? <laughs> how, how, do you, how, how do you think about rage in the context of meditation practice? It teaches you to let anger go and not your uh, emotions, ego control you. Yes. I'm not an anger letter goer of. <laughs> um, um, I have, I have great respect for people who can meditate. <laughs> I really do. I can honestly say that. Like, I have tried super hard for many years to master meditation, and I have failed. And so, um, my way of, of making meaning, because actually, I don't think, I personally am not capable of letting go of anger. I genuinely am a type of person who has to do something. And, and that might literally be writing it down, just writing it down. Mm. And one of the really fascinating things that I found was that um, there is a relationship between anger and pain uh, that I didn't know about until I had to have it. Uh, for a long time, I had terrible facial pain. Uh, I had three children under the age of three. I was working. I slept very little, um, and sometimes I woke up crying because my face hurt so much, because mm -hmm. I was clenching every single muscle in my face and my neck all night. And um, so I went to the doctor, and he said to me, do you have any hobbies? <laughs> and I said, do you have a wife at home? <laughs> and he said, yes. And I said, I don't. <laughs> and, and, and I liked this man a lot. But I said to him, I said, you know, people don't really like it when I say stuff like this. But in fact, I'm probably one of those people that's doing two more hours of unpaid work a week, a day, and that's a wealth transfer. <laughs> and um, so no one, I went to many doctors, and uh, eventually it stopped, but I think it stopped because I realized I was mad, mm -hmm. and I wasn't saying anything, and I do what many of us do, which I do write about, which is I would say, I'm so stressed. Yes. And how many times do we say, I'm tired, mm. or I'm stressed, Lots. or, Lots. oh, no, don't worry about it. I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, totally. and, um, and I stopped doing that. And I urge everybody I know to say no unapologetically. Mm -hmm. And I also feel pretty strongly that self-care and the issue of stress um, put too much burden on us as women to manage ourselves. I mean, no massage is ever going to solve your anger problem. <laughs> no pedicure is going to solve your anger problem. 
you know, a no candle is going to close the wage gap. I mean, if a candle could close the wage gap, <laughs> we'd be in pretty good shape. So, so I didn't even okay, say what so I wanted to say. <laughs> Anger is a mediator of pain. And so if a person who suffers from chronic pain, the overwhelming majority of people suffering from chronic pain are women, by the way, globally, if a person writes down their feelings of anger in a way that makes meaning, literally, think about it, write it down, which may be a way of letting it go, they are better able to manage and live with pain, and um, that's a net positive, like really huge effects on people. Um, so that's my form of meditation, probably. I write publicly. I like share it, my anger with the world, and it makes me feel better. Okay. So. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a few more. Okay. So what do you make of the repetitive nature of women's movements, given the anger, at anger and injustice and oppression that fuels them, and what are your thoughts on the sustainability of the progress they make? Do they make the impact needed to make change, or does their repetitive nature indicate that they don't make the impact they intend? And how do you see the role of anger aiding or hindering their progress? So I don't think there's ever been a social movement in which anger has not been at the forefront of that social mm -hmm. movement, mm -hmm. you know? And I mean, I'd be hard pressed to find one in which that was not the case. Mm -hmm. And again, I don't think that that's the explosive, destructive, violent, negative anger that we tend to focus on. I think it is also the incredibly um, community-focused, compassionate, joyful anger of just bringing people together who are going to do the extremely hard day-to-day -day work of making long-term change. Mm -hmm. I also don't think that um, the vast array of diverse women's movements are repetitive. I think they are cumulative, and I think that it's hard and slow. Mm -hmm. And um, I think you know, we're here today on this stage, working the way we do, being able to read, open our own bank accounts, um, keep our children maybe safe sometimes, um, because of women's movements mm -hmm. for social justice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, nothing entertains me more than when a conservative feminist, an oxymoron if I have ever heard one, <laughs> when a conservative feminist um, talks about how um, the, you know, pushing the envelope is bad for society and <laughs> destructive and hurting men. I mean, we haven't even talked about masculinity. That's a whole other thing. But, you know, I mean, I don't, I never really understand that. I think that it is really slow, though. So talking about conservative women, one Someone out there wants to know, how do you deal with women Trump supporters? Just in general? Who are... Who, <laughs> who, are, who are apologists, Trump apologists, this person writes? So there's so many layers to that. Um, I have spent a lot of time, like intense amounts of time and focus, um, trying to understand a couple of things about cognition, um, because I still like to think facts matter. And 
Um, I really have tried for my own, like just for my own understanding, to work through why people decide to do what they do and act against their own best interests mm -hmm. and um, why people are systems justifying, mm -hmm. which is, you know, the flanks of women behind Bruce Kavanaugh, mm -hmm. right? And um, what it means to have to, as a person, break with all of that. Mm -hmm. And I'm probably not a particularly sympathetic person, ultimately, mm -hmm. and I'm really impatient. So on a personal level, I probably just avoid those people. Mm. <laughs> okay. Like, really and truly, because um, I see no purchase in... Um, I, I don't have time. That's how I feel. Like, honestly. And, and that's not to say that I think that trying to meet in the middle somewhere is useless, I don't. Um, I have great compassion for people who are suffering. And I don't want anybody to suffer, but if your um, well-being is contingent on the violent oppression of other people, there's just no meeting there. And, and so, um, you know, the, the question I get a lot is, why, why did so many women vote for Trump? And I still have to point out that white women were the people who voted for Trump, <laughs> and that, in fact, what Trump did that is fascinating to me is he highlighted gender inequality in conservative culture. He put it on full display. He flagrantly boasted about it. He brought what other people think needed to stay in locker rooms into the public, he betrayed the whole idea that he was actually someone who could protect someone. <clears throat> and all that whole corrupt trade between, um, th that whole corrupt trade of men will provide and protect in exchange for public power, right? I grew up Catholic. So, um, but, but that whole idea, he just showed how vacuous it was. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think that in light of feeling acute gender inequality, what does a person do? They double down on status in other ways. So if white women could leverage racial superiority and supremacy to maintain status identity, that's what they did. I mean, I don't, it's not even a mystery how that would work, you know? And um, I just think that was a systems justifying vote. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, too, because we never, we talk about intersectionality, and usually we might talk about, um, you know, sort of queer black women. Mm -hmm. But white women have intersectional identities, and we seem to ignore that. Mm -hmm. You know, whether they're working class or upper middle class, religious or not religious, those intersectional identities have political meaning. Yes. And... We just never seem to talk about that. All over the world, the earliest adopters of authoritarian leaders are women living with extreme inequality. Mm -hmm. Any society you go to, the early adopters, because they literally are looking for a strong protector mm. who might establish rules that might keep them safer. And we never talk about the inequality of highly religious women in this country 
who are in heterosexual relationships. The Republican Party's um, representation of women is the same as hybrid authoritarian regimes like Mali. Mm. Right? Our rank in the world for representation of women is pretty piss poor. Mm -hmm. But it's brought up by the fact that we have women in the Democratic Party, six times more in positions, the representative positions. But if you just looked at the Republican Party, we would rank about 132 out of 137. Mm. Right? And so we keep talking about the political divide and pretending that the gendered aspect of the divide is just kind of a tangential interest for feminists to dabble with, mm -hmm. you know? That's a big, big difference in terms of representation of women. Mm -hmm. um, but think about it. How many people here grew up with any religious culture? Mm -hmm. Right? Probably all monotheistic. Maybe not. But, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I grew up Catholic, and I went to church every weekend, and... Um, and I remember learning that I couldn't be a priest and thinking, well, that's dumb. <laughs> and no, seriously, I was like 11. And I thought, what the hell is that? And I had parents who loved me enough and I was the kid who read the catechism, like from cover to cover. And I'd sit in church and I'd read and read and read. So when I said to my parents, I'm not going to church anymore, they said, okay. Not a lot of parents will do that, right? And they kept going, but I raised my children not going, and I did it for a very specific reason, which is that every single time you take a child, boy or girl, into a place of worship where women can't speak, you are telling them that ritually silencing women is acceptable, mm -hmm. and that public authority is purely the realm of men. And why would we do that? Like, I've never understood that. I haven't understood it since I was 11. And so, I'm super fun at Thanksgiving. <laughs> like, you know? Okay. All right. <laughs> Can you talk about the... Um, angry black woman stereotype uh -huh. and how that expectation and reality of justified black women's anger operates? So, um, in the last couple of years, there have been some remarkable studies. Like, we all live with this stereotype. Like, mm -hmm. it's just part okay. of our culture, this trope of the angry black woman. I mean, think about Michelle Obama who, you know, she went to the White House, she didn't wear sleeves. <laughs> um, and she was, she was painted over and over again uh, as an angry black woman. And every single day, we see images in media that are editorial choices about how women who are black and God forbid have achieved some level of political authority or celebrity are represented. So we saw it certainly with Serena Williams, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Serena Williams was fined, the highest ever fine at the US Open, ever. Like, I'm 52. How many 
badly behaved male tennis players have we seen, right? And the fact is that those men not only were glorified, but then monetized their bad behavior, right? Like how many advertising contracts, Sports Illustrated covers, you know, news jobs did they get? And so, you know, I mean, yesterday, Stacey Abrams, my God, this woman is brilliant. Mm -hmm. She's going to do the response to the State of the Union, right? Right? Stacey Abrams is one of the most unflappable, charming people (laughs) that you will ever meet, and she's not, like, smiling incessantly like we're all supposed to, but she's easy with her smiles. And what pictures did they choose to show of Stacey Abrams? Mm-hmm. Like, scowling, finger-wagging woman, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, how debilitating is that for, for a woman? Like, that's just ridiculous, right? And it really starts before first grade. The disparities in treatment start before first grade. And, um, you know, if you're a young black girl, you can never achieve the idealized, fragile femininity that automatically accrues if you're a white girl, mm-hmm. right? And the thing about the, the white fragility is that it is the most powerful lever of sexism and racism. Mm-hmm. And we don't sit young white girls down and say, hey, your femininity, we're going to use that constantly to justify male violence, racist oppression, masculine rule, like, you can't say that to little girls, right? But that's what's happening. I mean, in our media, so many, I love disaster movies. My favorite movie ever is RoboCop. Like, <laughs> like I will watch it over and over and over again, and I watch, like, all the tidal wave movies and asteroid movies and giant whale movies, and very often, the ultimate victim in those movies is a sweet little white girl, right? Because then you need a very big, strong man. (laughs) And um, that's funny in our media. It's not so funny in our politics. It's not funny in our schools. Mm -hmm. I mean, the interesting thing to me is that all of these white women voted for Hillary Clinton, but in the same time frame, the Harvard School of Education did a study of 20,000 high school students across the country, every single slice of data you could want they included. Race, ethnicity, class, gender, sexual identity, 20,000, big sample cell. And they asked students in high school what they thought of leadership, who they thought in their own classes were the most capable, trustworthy, credible, authoritative leaders. And all the kids said, the young white boys. Mm. And interestingly, and this is a perk of the multiple identities that black girls and women have, black girls and women were seen as extremely good leaders and powerful immediately after young white boys, because in fact, people couldn't quite categorize them as either women or white. Mm -hmm. They just, like, they just sort of had this ambiguous place that benefited in terms of how people perceived them in in school. The least trusted were young white girls, and the people who trusted them the least were young white girls. (laughs) And, And 
that's sad, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's a super sad commentary on our culture. And I just think those girls grow up to be women who, as Gloria Steinem says, don't come to appreciate what's happened and maybe become engaged in more revolutionary independent thinking when they are much older, like in their 60s, mm-hmm. right? And we just need that to happen when they're six. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. okay, we're going to have our last question. Okay. So. My husband loathes me being a strong, successful woman, someone writes. How have you made it work? Wait, my husband loves me? Loathes. (laughs) Oh, wow. In other words, he's not a happy guy. Wow. And so I guess she's asking for an example from your family structure and your marriage. How have you made it work? How have I made it work? Well, I don't know. I mean, we met when we were 18. And um, we didn't get married for a very, very long time. Um, I, I don't know that I'm equipped to answer that question, to be honest. I mean, I think that... Um, I'm trying to think if there's... I mean, in fact, the description in that note is also not uncommon um, in heterosexual marriages, uh, which is why 50% of heterosexual marriages end in divorce, 70% initiated by women. And um, the irony of that to me is that I'm going to blindly guess that that man might be conservative. Um, no, not conservative, <laughs> progressive, even worse. Um, but, but this is interesting too, because I actually think that is conservative, regardless of the label, right? But um, there was something I was going to say, though, that I thought was important to answer this question. Um, it was the divorce rates, the, oh, the irony. So often we hear that feminists have destroyed the institution of marriage. Mm -hmm. And um, the surest way to have a happy, intact, sexually fulfilling, egalitarian marriage is to embrace feminism. And it is, like it just is. And so, you know, I really do believe that a lot of men struggle with intimate equality and status and power because the way we continue to construct masculinity necessarily requires vulnerability from women. And that's really bad for everyone. So I'll explain what I mean. The two standard pillars of masculinity are that men provide and protect. I mean, by the time a boy is 11 or 12, There's so many ways that he's been told that he, you know, he associates masculinity not just with anger and aggression, but with wage earning Mm -hmm. and with being bigger and stronger and there's chivalry that exaggerates difference and all of these these things. And 
So think about that. In order to provide for someone, they need not to be able to provide for themselves. Mm-hmm. And um, if a woman is providing for herself, is not financially dependent, uh, what, what does that leave a man who's literally heard his whole life that he derives his identity and power and status from doing that job? Same thing with protecting women, right? I mean, when all of us pour out our stories of violence, what we're literally saying to the men in our lives is, we don't feel safe or protected. And so there's a lot of, um, there's, there's a lot that goes into the denial of this violence that we live with. I mean, I remember at one point saying to my husband, um, you cannot protect us. There's nothing you can do. You cannot follow us around. You cannot go to work with me. You cannot take the bus with me. You cannot travel with me. You cannot go into the food store with me. I got mad one day because I changed the market I was going to because a man followed me around the market. He worked there. He did it multiple times. I just did not want to go, right? And I went for a walk one day and I wanted to exercise and I put on a pair of sunglasses. And my husband said, are you exercising with sunglasses? And I was like, do you know what? I do not want to make eye contact with any man that I am walking by right now. I just don't. I just want to go for my walk and be left alone. Mm -hmm. And what happened to me that day? A police officer followed me on his motorcycle for two hours. Oh, yes, for two hours. And I was really upset when I got home. And, and that's when I realized that for my, for my husband or my brother or my father, the way that equation goes, for them to acknowledge what women are navigating is to acknowledge the impossibility of the ideal and a sense of failure. That's really critical. That's a crisis of identity, right? And so all these gaps in belief, I believe, are genuinely rooted in that crisis. So as long as we construct boys' masculinity around those ideals, we are encouraging them cognitively to deny the truth of what we're saying. And that's why I said Me Too is much scarier if what we're saying is true, right? It's not, the scary thing isn't that men are endangered because we're all lying. Because we're not all lying, right? They're just, we're not lying. It is more frightening that we're telling the truth. Yes. I don't know what to tell yes. you about your <laughs> Thank you, Soraya. Thank, Thank you so much. <clears throat> yes. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you to Soraya Shamali and interviewer Carol Carmichael for joining us on the Sal Stage and Now podcast. Thank you to the Seattle Arts and Lecture staff, board, and community, and thanks to all of you for listening. This show would not be possible without you. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center with theme music by Daniel Spills. To hear more, subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts, and while you're there, rate and review us five stars so that more people can enjoy Sal on Air.